You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples plant churches and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, 28, chapter 2, verse 18 and 22, and chapter 3, 15 to 16. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Hey, well, good morning once again. Welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, maybe it's just me. I've had a weird week. About to tackle a passage that's kind of tricky. Some just kind of feels a little off. And uh, I'm just going to pray. We'll start there. And then we're going to work our way into the text, all right? Uh, would you pray for me? I'm going to pray for you in our time together. Lord Jesus. We acknowledge right now you are seated at the right hand of the Father. You are ruling and reigning over the cosmos. There is not one square inch in all creation that does not belong to you. And in your grace, you are bringing to yourself a people, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people for your own possession, people who have been bought by your blood who are then sent out on your purposes to make much of your name and so that the glory of the Lord would cover the oceans, uh, cover the world like the, the waters cover the seas. And you've given us your word You've communicated to us, you've not left us in the dark, but you have given us your word to show us what you are like and what you're up to in this world. And this morning, Lord, we ask that you would grant us a pause, a moment of stillness, where the distractions and the responsibilities and all of the other things that are nagging at our mind right now would just sort of fade away in the backdrop of things and that we could have a time to commune with you among your people. 
Lord, I pray that you would help me this morning to think clearly, to speak with precision, to speak the truth and nothing but the truth, that this church would be edified and built up in love. I pray that you would open up our ears to hear this morning, our hearts to think through um, the beauty of, of your logic of how you've made the world to be, that our hearts would be stirred with affections and we'd be eager to serve you because of the words we hear this morning. God, there is none like you. Words, words can't capture who and what you are. But we just ask by your grace that you give us a sliver, a glimpse into this so that we would be enraptured by your glory, that we'd be kind of the kind of people who are completely sold out for you, Lord. We ask this for your glory and for the joy of all people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're new to Sacred City, I want to welcome you and say thanks for being here. Over the last several months, um, we have been focusing on really camping out in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 as our scripture reading today. We saw a little snippet from each one of those chapters. And in our time in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, what we've really been focusing on is the doctrine of creation, which might be the doctrine that is most under attack in our day and age. And as we've been wrestling through and thinking through and diving deep into this glorious doctrine... Uh, we've been specifically over the last couple of weeks focusing on humans. This is one of the beautiful things about being a human, being a man or a woman created in the image of God, that we have minds to think, that we get to consider our station of how God made us, how God made the world. And one of the, the primary things, the first thing we see here in Genesis chapter one, as God makes Man in his own image, he, we see that he's made them both male and female. Men and women, both created in the image of God, equal in dignity, value, and worth. They're equal, but not equivalent. And one of the things that we've been processing is how God has created gender distinctives, which are not rooted in culture, but rooted in creation. And as we've explored this reality, this, this creational reality of gender, we've also seen how sin and the curse muddles things up, creates all kinds of disorder and confusion around the topics of gender and the roles of, of gender. And what we've been digging into in recent weeks is how grace restores nature. That Jesus brings us back to this creational order and enables us by his spirit, through his power, to step into this calling that we've received in creation as men and women. Now, if you were with us last week, uh, I put men on the hot seat. The whole topic was of masculinity, godly, biblical masculinity. And if you weren't able to catch that sermon, I'd encourage you to go back. But today, it's the ladies' turn. We're, we're approaching the topic of biblical femininity. And that's a word that I'm going to stumble over every time I try to say it. I try, try to say it really fast so you can't hear me mispronounce it. But we're focusing on the ladies today. And I will be the first to tell you that this topic is not in my wheelhouse. Um, 
All I need to preach on masculinity is about 15 minutes and a piece of scratch paper, right? I'm ready to go. I've read, I've read books, I've studied, I'm a man. God's made me to be inclined to think about what it means to be a man. So I'm ready to get up here and preach on masculinity. But when it comes to, to femininity, uh, for every one book I've read on biblical masculinity, I've maybe read one sentence of biblical femininity, just in my own personal life, right? I, I don't have a storehouse of knowledge and understanding because it's a topic that doesn't directly apply to me. I have no firsthand experience of what it means to be a woman. Yeah, it's great. And as I think about it, I've grown up in the church my whole life and, and I've heard little snippets about femininity, biblical womanhood, but I've never heard an entire sermon devoted to this topic. But today, even with my lack of qualifications in sort of a worldly sense, we're still going to dive deep into this topic. Not based upon my own merits, but what the word of God has to say to us, which contains not only the message of salvation, but a message of life and godliness, all of life done to the glory of God, including masculinity and femininity. And so what I want to do, that's where we're going. That's the topic. I'm going to start by just offering an audit of this current cultural moment that we stand in right now. You know, I don't think I have to tell you that we're in some pretty strange times. Things have gotten quite bizarro here in the, in the sense that many U.S. citizens and some of our top-ranking uh, U.S. officials cannot give a definition for what a woman is. And if you can't define what a woman is, you can imagine how distorted and strange of a view we have when we approach the topic of womanhood or femininity. Example number one, we have men, biological men, who claim to be women that are pumped full of artificial estrogen, who have gone under the knife to experience facial reconstruction, body morphine, they, they, they parade around in drag, and then we have people that say, he, because he's a man, he radiates femininity. You have other women looking at this person and saying, I validate your womanhood. Strange times. Who would have thought that this was coming? Now, what this shows us is that our culture has a ultra-shallow definition, ultra-shallow view of femininity. It's skin deep. Maybe a little makeup, change your clothes, and then now all of a sudden you possess feminine qualities. Now, what's strange is that, I mean, that's strange, but then the other dimension of this is that even the feminists, the so-called champions of womanhood, the people who you think would have a high view of femininity actually have a very low view of femininity. It's the feminists who are the most hostile 
toward biblical femininity. They're the ones who mock, shame, and ridicule happy mothers and homemakers saying, don't you want more out of life? There's so much more. You could have so much more if you were to get a job and work outside of the home. Belittling this calling that's been placed on mothers and homemakers. At the core of their desire is they want to see an egalitarian society, a society that that makes men and women totally interchangeable to take out men here, plug in women there, and vice versa. Where they do such a thorough job of blurring distinctions and the unique calling of men and women that they want to put women on the front lines and behind pulpits, places that are reserved for men. But it's not just our culture that seems to have lost it, if they ever had it. The shouts of feminism and warped womanhood have been so loud that it reverberates in the church today. On the few occasions where femininity is spoken about from a pulpit, it's typically done fearfully. You get a guy, probably a well-meaning guy, up behind the pulpit, opens up the word of God, and feels like he's got to tiptoe around the topic. He's afraid to say anything convicting, or really, what he's, if you really boil it down, he's afraid, he's a coward in a sense, that he's going to hurt women's feelings. And so he approaches biblical womanhood almost apologetically, just loaded with disclaimers and yeah buts, to kind of soften the blow, give, give, to give women sort of the, this white glove treatment. And actually what happens is cowardice takes control so much that instead of saying a hard word to women and calling them to faith and repentance, what happens is he sidesteps that and goes right after the dudes. Anyway, even, even in the times where it's fitting to call women to repentance. And it lets the ladies off the hook. Now, one thing that I learned about last week is that ladies love a sermon that's directed to men. <laughs> Somebody said, I, don't, I forget who it was. Somebody said, you know what? I've never seen so many ladies agree with you last week. Just constant nodding, right? It's like, yeah, get him, pastor. You tell my husband, right? Right, there, there is this, this piece of cowardice that's at play that, that pastor will sidestep this conviction that's directed to women and let them off the hook. Now, this is all terribly unfortunate. And if I were a lady, which I'm not, and I'm glad that I'm not, not because I don't love ladies, but because God didn't make me one. If I were a lady, I would be offended by this poor treatment of the topic. Because on one hand, it applies that womanhood is not all that glorious. That if you have to speak about biblical womanhood loaded with apologies and and sort of uh, conditioned statements, then it insists that God's design for womanhood really is probably a little bit demeaning, but but we want to soften, like, no. And on the other hand, if if it's not implying that womanhood is not all that glorious, on the other hand, It implies that women are too fragile to deal with conviction. Like that women aren't aren't able to handle the conviction of the spirit in the same way that men are. 
and sort of dismiss it and say, well, you know, we don't want to be too emotional. We want to hammer on their emotions too much. We don't think they can handle a hard word. And so this whole topic just sort of gets put off, put, put off limits. It's terribly unfortunate. And if you believe the Bible, if you believe what God says is true, then you know that both of these things are false. There is a unique and radiant glory to femininity. The glory of glory. And while 1 Peter 3 says that women are the weaker vessel, they certainly are not fragile. If they can handle labor and delivery, she can handle conviction. Because, check this out, both of those things are temporary but painful gateways to life and glory. Now it's with this, all this sort of like baggage of this whole topic in mind. What I wanna do is uh, I wanna show you the glories and the pitfalls of womanhood. Last week, I boiled masculinity down to one word and I wanna do the same thing for the ladies. I wanna give you one word. I didn't even make a slide this week because it's just one thing. Now, when you look at the text that was read, uh, if you look at Genesis chapter two, verse 18, where it says, um, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It would make sense that the word, you would maybe speculate the word I'm going to is helper. After all, God gave Adam a task to fill the earth, to subdue it, to tend to the garden, to see to its flourishing. And what Adam realizes early on here is that he needs help. He looks at all the animals and there's no helper that's suitable. There's no helper fit for him to help him with the mission, but also to reproduce with. He cannot fulfill this commission that God has given him by himself. And so he does need a helper. And so in one sense, yes, a helper is a good word. And, and if I maybe had more of a series to build this out, I definitely would land here. But I want to get even more specific today. I, I kind of want to dig into the kind of help the woman is to the man and really get at the heart of biblical femininity. So here's the one word. The word that I want to use for this, that captures this, is nurture. The heart of biblical femininity is nurture. The inclination and ability to care for and develop people and places to a greater glory. As daughters of the mother of all living, which is what Adam calls Eve, right? Eve means the mother of all living. Women, you are hardwired to nurture. It's biological, it's physiological, it's, it's just put in you. This desire to nurture. This is why you see little girls playing with baby dolls. It's very instinctual. And while it might be to various degrees, it is something that is embedded in the DNA of women. And, and here's the thing. Nurture has a glorious effect. To nurture something means that you take in one thing and what you put out with it is even better. One, one author that I read 
She said, she used this metaphor, women are like prisms. You know a prism that takes in one ray of light and then is able to split it up to, to the, like the whole spectrum of light? Like, like women have that ability that, that what they bring in then are able to enhance it and make it something more beautiful. Now pregnancy is a perfect example of this. A woman takes a contribution from a man, call it that, And God has made her body able to house and develop another human. Her insides shapeshift. She grows organs, like where's the placenta come from? I don't know. But her body is wired to do it. Her body shapeshifts. You see it happen internally, then externally, and for nine months, her own body is a home for another life. And then she gives birth. And then she is able to nurse that baby to health. This is mind-blowing. Like, men can't do this. In fact, 100% of humans born are born to women. That's facts. Only a woman can do this. Now, this, this birth thing is miraculous and incredible. It should be celebrated, uh, a gift from God. Praise the Lord for this. But this is just the start of what will be roughly 18 years of nurturing another human. From feeding to cleaning and caring and teaching and loving, this woman has an inclination to care for, to nurture this child and the crazy part is some, some ladies are willing to do it multiple times, right? To go through the whole challenges of giving birth and then do it all over again with another one. Now, this, this was God's design from the beginning. Women were meant to have this capability to do this, to carry children and, and produce fruit with their womb. But because sin has entered the world and we experience the curse of sin that God has pronounced upon women specifically, the, the birthing process is riddled with pain. You see this in Genesis chapter three, verse 16. He says, to the women, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Sin frustrates this whole child-raising journey. Not just the, the initial birth of it, but the whole process of nurturing a child. There, there's, there's the reality is that she gave birth to a sinner who's going to rebel and push away, um, that, that will not submit to the authority that God has granted to the parents. So that's, that's a facet of this relationship. But there's also the sin that is in the woman. There's a tendency with the difficulty of raising children and the fear and admonition of the Lord, that mothers neglect this calling. Now, for some, it, it looks like completely forfeiting um, the responsibility that God has put in their lap. But in most cases, it's these micro, um, micro expressions of neglect. And, and one of the most common one is failing to discipline your children. When your child sins, to hold them accountable, 
to walk them through a discipline process. And the reality is it's, it's, it's difficult. It's not fun. And so a lot of times you see this withdrawing from the responsibility of, of loving, of embracing the difficulty of issuing discipline in a godly way and neglecting the child, which scripture says, uh, if you do not discipline your child, if you spare the rod, you hate your son. It's a kind of neglect. But another thing that we see that complicates the child rearing process is that as the child grows up, as the child goes through different developmental stages and, and gets more and more competency in life, this mother's good desire to nurture her child can become overwhelming. So as the child grows up in independence, she doesn't uh, sort of taper her, 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 um, what she's doing back. Rather, she continues to sort of set over the top be overbearing. And what happens, instead of promoting growth and development, she actually shuts down the child's ability to grow and develop because that child's being babied. And in this, what we see is a mom's desire to nurture sort of devolve into unhealthy codependency which not only creates problems for the mom, but also later on the child will struggle trying to, to figure out how do I stand on my own two feet? Now, when we see this unhealthy codependency go on with the mother and a child, it typically means that marital problems are either close behind or are already on the doorstep. Sometimes it's the marital problems are the cause that pushes a mother toward codependency. See, while, while the child gets excessive attention, her husband is overlooked. Now, the reality is that husbands need the nurture of their wives, not in the same way that her child needs nurtured, but the husband needs the wife's help and nurture too in a different capacity where he's looking for a friend a co-laborer, a mission partner, a, a great support and help who encourages him in the mission that God has called him to. But her attention is locked on the kids so she can't see the needs of her husband. Instead, what happens is this man often finds himself with a quarrelsome or naggy wife, a woman who is bitter a woman who is irritable, who always has something critical to say, who belittles her husband to her friends, who makes backhanded comments. The Proverbs say that, that it is better to live on a corner of a roof than to live in the house with a naggy wife like that. Because this woman is going against what God has designed her to do. See, instead of nurturing her home, nurturing her people, taking care of her place, she is the foolish woman that you see in Proverbs 14 who tears down her home with her own hands. But a godly woman, a wise woman, is the one who builds up her home 
who makes her home an oasis for her people to flourish and be cared for. Now, part of this in building up her home entails crafting certain places and settings that are conducive for this growth and development that she's, she's aiming for in her nurture of her people. She is to make a home that is specifically designed for her people, that is easy and a joy for her people to live in. Now, we've got four kids, four boys. If my wife were like, you know what? We need glass everywhere in our house. Glass vases, glass chandeliers. This would be a bad idea, okay? Because it's a house that wouldn't be fit for us. We'd be cleaning up a lot of glass, folks. So part of making a space is making a space that's well fit for her people, that's easy for her people and a joy for her people to live in, where she works hard and diligently to cultivate this kind of space. This, this is not accidental. This is a labor of love. This, this is a way that she expresses care for her people. In other words, you could even say she's a homemaker. She, she's making a place for people to be developed and nurtured in. Now, one of the places where we see this portrayed in Scripture is, is the ever-famous Proverbs 31. And this proverb, if you've never spent time in this, you ought to because it just beams with the glory of femininity. It shows that a godly woman blesses her people by creating a blessed space. If you look through it, it says, an excellent wife, who, who, can find, who, who, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. And, and we see some of the things that she does. She stocks the pantry. She acquires clothes and linen. Some of them she makes by hand. She prepares meals. She rallies her people around the table for face-to-face -face time as a family. Right, those, those spaces where her people can grow and develop. She cultivates gladness. She's resourceful. She's industrious. She's prepared for all seasons. And her objective in creating this kind of a home is to create a space that helps her in her, her natural inclination to nurture her people. Homemaking is one of the ways, one of the central ways the godly woman expresses her nurture, her care for her people. Now, this is a good thing, but good things can become idols. Good, good things can go awry. Good things can get twisted. And, and we see this um, when, when a, a woman gets so infatuated with making a space that's worthy of being uh, uh, 
you know, right up next to Chip and Joanna Gaines's living room. Right, to the point where she's developing this picture, this ideal that, that is really more for the people on her social media feed, for the affirmation that she might get from her friends than it is for her own people. And she has to wonder, she has to ask this question, whose praise am I after? Am I seeking the praise well, in Proverbs 31, she, the praise of her husband, praise her at the gates. Or is she looking for affirmation from outside her, that circle? Now, this topic, I know, um, naturally leans heavy into moms and wives. And, and I know that there are probably some singles, some unmarried people, some even wives who do not yet have children that are wondering, what, what does this mean for me? Your capacity to nurture, this inclination that God has implanted in you, in creation, transcends your marital status or the kids that you have under your roof. This is a skill that gets developed over time. And it may one day lead to your own home. You've got your husband to be a helpmate to. You've got children to bring up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It might end in that one day. And I pray that it does, if that's your desire. But for some, it might mean singleness. And, and God has not left you uh, alone or, or made you less woman and not giving you a place where you can utilize that desire to nurture. And one of the gifts that God gives you is the church, the family of God, to put you in the midst of a people, to, to give you an inclination towards relationship for caring and, and doing the discipleship work in community and on mission. That God has given you a place to practice hospitality. Maybe it's a one-bedroom apartment. Maybe it's, maybe it's even in, in your workspace, this inclination to care for people, to create space that's welcoming and hospitable. God has put you in places where you can exercise that natural inclination. And what I want you to see is that this is glorious. I, I do not want you to bite in the lie that this is somehow inferior to the work that men do. In fact, um, it's probably a couple months ago now, uh, I was at the gym and it's a, she was a, um, recently became a mother and she was struggling, she wanted to work, she was bought into this idea that in order to really uh, amount to something, to be something in life, she had to have this full-time job. She had to be that successful you know, businesswoman and still somehow have this full-time job of raising a child. And she was like, well, I don't wanna just be a mom. And I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're not just a mom. Do you have any idea the responsibility, the weight that it takes to train little humans? the kind of exhaustion that you'll go through, trying to, striving for the best to nurture these little ones. See, society has us like duped into thinking that to be a homemaker, to be oriented toward the home is this less than life. Now, I'm not saying that you can't work outside of the home. That's not, the Proverbs 31 woman, she, she's a merchant. She's selling her goods. She's making business moves. 
but she does so with her family in view. She does so because it benefits those she's been called to nurture. And so this, this view of, of biblical femininity is a glorious thing. You have no idea how huge of a blessing, and in fact, you might have an idea that, that you had a mother who nurtured you well, who brought you up in the faith, who, who modeled these things well. Praise the Lord for that. It's a huge blessing to those people. It's a huge gift. See, femininity, the core, the heart of femininity is to nurture. And biblical femininity is motivated by love. It is a love for what you have that leads you to nurture. And this is a love that produces life. It's a life-giving femininity. Love is what drives this. It's the engine behind it. It's a love for God. It's a love for your people. It's a love for your place. But because of sin, our, our love, it doesn't shut off. It's like a fire hydrant that's always on full blast. Our love is always cranking out of us. But it's a question of what is our love direct, directed at. And what sin does, it causes us to turn in on ourselves, to turn inward, to re redirect that love, to become self-centered and to make the love that I have all about me. Now this is, not, this is not a benign thing. It's not like, oh yeah, of course, everybody's selfish. No, this, this self-motivated, self-centered love is the seed that results in millions of babies being aborted a complete rejection of the call to nurture, to love, to care for, to develop. And this self-centered love short-circuits biblical femininity, the, the kind of life-giving femininity that's meant to inject people with life and make things better and more glorious. Instead, instead it makes things a living hell. And if God were to leave women alone and just put them off to their own devices, it would be a miserable existence. I mean, the same's true for men, but ladies, you're on the hot seat. If God were to just leave us alone, it would be a miserable existence, but God is too gracious. God is too gracious to let sin get the last word. In the person and work of Jesus, grace restores us. By the self-giving love of Christ, who shows us exactly what it looks like to lay yourself down, to pour yourself out, what selfless love is. Jesus loves to the point of death. Death on a tree where he experiences the curse of sin, the weight of sin, coming down on him. And in this, our sinful hearts are nailed to the cross there with him. And in his resurrection, we receive new hearts that beat after God. So that it's not only that God created life in the beginning in Genesis 1-1, but in the resurrection, we have been recreated by God's grace to go back to what God has originally created us for. 
And so this means in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you are loved back to life. That is life-giving love. And in the places where we lack, because there's gonna be days, there's gonna be days where you just, it feels like you don't have, have the steam. You don't got the juice to do what God's called you. you. Like, I'm so tired. My feet hurt, my back aches. I'm tired of the crying. How am I ever going to nurture the people? Like, there, there's just gonna be that fatigue. But here's the hope that we have, that Christ not only loves us back to life, but now that life-giving love is in you. Colossians 1.27 says that Christ is in you. He's the hope of glory. That your heart is now beating with his. It's, it's his desire working through you to do what is good and glorious so that you can lean into biblical femininity. That you, by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, can nurture people and places to life. That through the word of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, biblical femininity embodies glory. No wonder why Adam says, he just gushes when he sees Eve, at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The glory. Women, this, this is your calling. In whatever Whatever season of life you're in right now, God has wired you to nurture. This is a glorious calling. And as you lean into that through, through God's power, God uses you to magnify blessing and glory. To love with a life-giving love to the glory of God. Because Christ has loved us in that way. This morning as we come to the Lord's table, we remember the reality that Christ's body was broken, his blood was shed. He faced death so that we could taste life. And it's that grace that, that saves us from sin that enables us to live godly lives, both in the masculine capacity and in the feminine capacity. And so as we receive the elements today, not only are you being reminded of the sacrifice that was made for you to, to pay for the price of sin, but the power, it's a reminder of the power of the Holy Spirit as you take and eat is with you now today that you can live into the calling that God's placed on your life. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that in your wisdom, you have created both men and women in your image. You've given us equal dignity, value, and worth, yet in your wisdom, you have created us different God, I pray that as Christians, we would embrace the beauties of gender distinctives, that we would see it behind it, your loving care and wisdom for your people. And I pray, Lord, that you would rise up right now in this moment, in this day, men who are masculine and women who are feminine, who would seek to honor you in all of life, Lord, and we ask that your spirit would empower us to boldly live out these implications of the gospel, that we would show the world your glory and splendor, how it is Christ who gives life. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.